Hello and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Jason Knight, and on each episode of this podcast, I'll be having inspiring conversations with passionate product people. If that sounds like your cup of tea, why not pop over to the website, onenightinproduct.com, check out some other great episodes and sign up to the mailing list or subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Make sure you never miss another episode again. On tonight's episode, we'll be talking about Product Sense with not one but two guests at the same time. We'll talk about how a friendship born in the heady world of gaming product management prospered and grew into a book-authoring partnership that aims to help the product management world develop their product sense. We talk about what product sense is and whether everyone has it and whether it can be learned. We talk about how to identify your product management superpower and work out how to really make yourself shine in that difficult product management interview process. We also talk about whether it's fair enough to be bragging on Twitter about how you're not doing any ticket writing anymore, or whether it's incumbent on all product people to roll up their sleeves and do a bit of the shovel work from time to time. For all this and much more, please join us on One Night in Product. So tonight, my two guests are Peter Knudsen and Braxton Bragg. Peter and Braxton are two seasoned product management professionals who first met on the job at Zynga, so you can expect further installments of this interview as exclusive downloadable content. <laughs> Peter then went on to a number of roles in the gaming industry, currently working at Electronic Arts, whereas Braxton diversified his portfolio in a number of industries and is now product director at Leica, a B2B compliance platform. But more important than any of that, they've recently teamed up for a new book, Product Sense which hopes to help you solve your problems like a PM, ace your interviews, and get your next job in product management. Hi, chaps. How are you tonight? Hi, everyone. My name is Peter Knudsen. I'm doing well. Happy to be here. Hey, everybody. Braxton Bragg. Yeah, thank you so much for having us. So first things first, the book is hot off the presses, so congrats on the release. But how has the reception been so far? The reception of Product Sense has been very positive, actually. We've been really impressed with the support that we've been getting. Yeah, I think sales have been uh, strong so far, about in line with what we expected, or maybe even a little bit better. But I think even more important to us is that a lot of folks whom we've worked with previously in various tech companies, other product managers have just been so encouraging of us putting this out there and just proud of us for this achievement. I'll also say, as someone who is doing a lot of recruiting right now, because our company is growing quickly, the candidates that I'm interviewing have just been super excited and I think more inclined to come work for me because I've co-authored this book. So that was kind of a, a side benefit I didn't necessarily anticipate. And to build off what Braxton was saying, one of the interesting bits about this that is most inspiring to me is where our book is showing up with and sharing shelf space with some of the great product thinkers already. So you can see if you search product management into Amazon, we're right next to Marty Kagan, who's written Inspired and Empowered, and Jackie Bravaro with the Cracking the PM interview and Cracking the PM career. So it's really honored to be able to share virtual self space with these people. And also to, to hear back from our readers on reviews. It's all been very good. And then one of the things that we did and part of the publishing process overall is just getting early feedback and iterating on that. That's not something that we took lightly. And that was really great to see. Uh, just like the feedback coming in initially, there was a rough around the edges, but polishing that, <laughs> we were pretty confident that when we were releasing the book, that it would at least be helping some people um, and not kind of releasing blindly. And I think it's great to see all that hard work paying off. Absolutely. I think it's funny as well because I've had a couple of authors now talking to me about 
taking that more iterative approach to writing a book rather than just locking themselves away in a cabin like in misery or something like that and spending all your time writing it and then eventually checking it out but just for the record i know that you have got some shelf space with some really top-notch authors but i also saw it today listed on amazon as a number one bestseller in computerized home and entertainment (laughs) just beating out competition from how to delete books from my kindle library which (laughs) i have no idea why that has to be a book but good job guys yeah that's the Dirty secret of Amazon publishing is that these cat- there's so many books with the number one bestseller tag <laughs> in very obscure categories. I think it's, it's Amazon working its algorithmic magic, I guess, trying to create as many number one sellers as possible. There you go. To drive sales. So we're, you know, uh, humbled to have that flag, <laughs> but we, we realize that there's heavy caveats on that one. <laughs> Fair enough. So we'll go into some themes from the book in a minute. But first off, I wanted to go back to back when you met. So you've known each other for a few years now. Yeah, going on 10 years. 10 years now? Almost, yeah. So you both worked at Zynga. I think you met at Zynga, home of Farmville mm-hmm. and many other games. I think, Peter, you actually worked on one of the Farmvilles as well, if, I, if my researchers have done their work correctly. Yeah, that's right. My job was to make sure that you got the most amount of Facebook notifications in your feed. (laughs) So you're Uh, one of the evil product managers, I get it. I started that way, I guess. (laughs) But did you both work together on anything at Zynga or did you kind of become friends in the Zynga product community slash networking events or whatnot? Yeah, I don't think we actually ever worked on anything directly together. We did start on the same day. So Zynga at that time was hiring kind of large groups of product manager in, in product managers in, in almost classes. So I think that summer there had been maybe three different PM start dates, and we were a part of a group of 13, 14, 15 people. So that group, I would say we got to know each other pretty well, as well as some of the other PMs who'd started that summer, even though, even though we didn't work directly on the same product. It's kind of like when you go to prison for the first time, right? You'll get off the bus at the same time and you'll become each other's friends, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Zynga probably felt that way sometimes too, but I think overall it was a great experience for the time that we were there. And you obviously stayed in touch, but you've both moved on since then. So Peter, you left Zynga, but you've stayed within gaming throughout your entire career. So it sounds like you're really passionate about that industry, but what is it specifically that kept you personally interested in gaming and sticking with gaming, not necessarily going out and checking out other types of industry? I mean, is it that you just really love working on really flashy games or Is there something else about gaming product management that really draws you? That's a great question. So I got started in games, actually, even before working as a product manager. When I was in college, I I got to be a game design intern at a company called Wizards of the Coast, which is famous for Magic the Gathering, which was my my favorite game as a kid. And (laughs) it was just like really an honor to work on that product. And when I transitioned into digital product management, that the what inspired me about working on that game and how my like the impact that i'm driving is that people are having more fun right your business does well when people are having fun and that is something that i'm passionate about now i'm not as much of a gamer as i used to be but the business around it is just fascinating and i think that even as a product manager there's so much opportunity to flex every part of your PM muscle, like from the data analysis to customer research to working even B2B, B2C. The, the space is so ripe with areas just for good product management that I didn't necessarily feel the need to leave. I, I tried, but it, it kept bringing <laughs> me back in. 
But that's interesting because you say, of course, that that it's a good area to stretch your product management wings. But Blackstone, you then decided to say, screw all that. I'm going to go and work in a bunch of different industries now. I know you even spent a little bit of time working in consulting as well. So you've kind of gone around and had a bit more of a journey into a lot of different types of product management, I guess. And I presume that's helped you understand a lot of things that obviously Peter says maybe you can scratch some of those itches within gaming, but maybe scratch them a bit differently in other places. Yeah. So I guess the question for doing that is like, do you A, hate games? <laughs> and uh, B, are you somewhat more interested in product management as a practice rather than, for example, a specific industry? No, I don't hate games at all. In fact, one of the things that <laughs> drew me to Zynga initially is that I have been and continue to be a, a lifelong gamer. So Zynga was not only an opportunity for me to transition into the tech space and the product management space, but to work on games. And you could argue that Zynga, especially back in 2013, wasn't making the best games. It was making <laughs> mobile freemium products that that maybe to some people don't even resemble games at all. But I think Zynga at that time was at the beginning of a transition into more interesting and deep gaming experiences that it's continued since then. As to why I I left Zynga and left gaming, I did want to see some other aspects of product management, yeah. get a sense of what product management looked like in in other companies and other types of spaces. But I don't know if I'll ever be completely free of the itch of uh, working on, on mobile games. I did actually, I worked at another gaming company called Scopely in, in Los Angeles uh, that, that has a very similar business model to, to Zynga. I think one of, one of the other things I'll say is I moved back to New York for family reasons. I, I grew up out here and there's just less gaming here. So it might have been more likely that I return to games if there were opportunities that sort of matched that ambition that were local. Sounds like a startup waiting to happen, if you ask me. <laughs> could be, could be. <laughs> so again, you obviously stayed in touch past Zynga, but it doesn't necessarily seem the most natural thing several years later to sit there and think, hey, it's time to write a book. So why was now the time to write that book? And why did you decide to write that together? One of the things that I had gotten into was thinking about product management as like a theoretical concept, right? Like, what does this discipline look like after practicing it for several years? Yeah. What does it mean to be a good product manager? And I think the information on that was relatively nascent a few years ago. I think people knew how to manage products at their own company, but what are the common ties between them is, is relatively new thinking. And I had written this blog post a few years ago on whether or not you needed an MBA to be a product manager. Oh, now, dear. I didn't have an MBA, and I'm, I'm sure this is something that we're going to talk about later, but I did a data analysis where I took like about 150 different job postings and put them through a text analysis tool and tried to see whether on the requirements section if MBA was a required feature for a product manager. And in only 2% of the instances was that the case. And that helped me decide whether or not I wanted to get my own MBA. Now, that post got really popular on Medium. And I was approached by a book publisher to uh, maybe turn that into something that was more full length. And at the time, I thought about it. And I realized that I don't know intimately the candidates' problems. What are they going through? And I, don't, I didn't feel like at the time that I was capable of writing this book. So I transitioned a little bit on my kind of my own time to starting to coach some product managers and really hear what they're saying and, and like, what are, what are they struggling with? And having done that for a couple of years and being really motivated by their successes, 
this is kind of where the Compass Framework came out of the book and kind of the common denominators of like seeing different product managers get jobs at different types of companies. I, I thought that at, maybe there was a point where we could, uh, I could start contributing to this zeitgeist of product management thinking. I, I didn't want to do this alone. And I had heard, you know, but Bracton, I chat probably every quarter at least. And it, I heard, I found out that he was also doing coaching. And his perspective on product management, I felt like was complementing to mine. And so we just decided to keep talking about co-authoring this book together. Yeah, I think it was just before the pandemic, actually, in late 2019. I, Although I had moved back to New York, I was going out to San Francisco maybe once a quarter or at least three times a year. And I would always see Pete whenever we went out there. And so I, I think we actually saw each other probably three to four times a year, but talked more frequently than that. Both realized that we had been doing some coaching. Um, his was a little bit more independent. Mine was with aspiring PMs from Columbia's MBA classes, who are that's kind of facilitated through the the Career Management Center there. Pete actually is a second time author, but I had been thinking about writing a book. It had occurred to me that there are lots of PMs, and I, I don't mean a, a majority of PMs, but lots of PMs who are out there writing blog posts. It might be something like five percent, three percent. Yep. But to to actually really commit to this journey of writing something that's a little bit more enduring is maybe not something that a lot of PMs are willing to commit to. And I didn't necessarily want to do it alone either. So once we started going down that path and realized we could keep each other honest and committed and share the workload, it, it became a pretty appealing and exciting idea. But obviously, the flip side of that, and obviously, you completely understand where you're coming from, but the flip side of that is that you could end up having loads of arguments about the content of the book, about the direction of the book, about what to include, what to exclude, some of the examples. And obviously, when you're looking at something as foundational in many ways as this, you know, this is something that in theory, if enough PMs or potential PMs buy it and read it, you can be affecting a lot of careers, right? It's not just some theoretical piece of work that people can like look at and go, huh, like this is actually something that could help a lot of people. So that's, I don't want to put a lot of pressure on you, but there is some pressure there, right? You're trying to help people. And if you disagree on that, then that could be quite tricky. So did you find that you had any disagreements or were you so kind of lockstep that it all worked itself out? Yeah, no, I think we disagreed frequently. And that's part of the, <laughs> that's part of the creative process when you, when you have two people working on something together. And, and I think the final product is, is better for it. The very intense debates we had from time to time about structure or about how to present a certain idea so that it would be more palatable or understandable to the reader neither of us could have done as good a job on this on this book alone. The final product is much better for our collaboration. And, and to build off of that, I think one thing that was interesting that we did at the start was we created something like an outline, but it's not, it wasn't an outline necessarily. It was a basically a vision document, kind of like how a product manager themselves would want to start any kind of feature work and getting people aligned to the same goal. Like we created a... I think we called it a book framing document, which was inspired by some of the stuff that I had done or we had done in our career for our day-to-day jobs. And a part of that was like identifying which personas or our reader personas and what do we want the reader to take away or to what problems are we solving for this reader when they end the book. And that alignment exercise was useful. So that, that limited some of the more high level disagreements that we could have had about before we even kept going. But we did disagree uh, significantly on some of the, you know, during the writing process, stuff always comes up. And it's like a marriage, you know, when you're co-authoring a book with someone, the words on the page are, I mean, at this point, 
No one knows who initially wrote them. (laughs) They've been blended together to one voice at the end of the day. One other thing I'll add too is that I think that there are parallels to the work that we do in product, the collaboration that we have in product on a daily basis. So I disagree with members of my team all the time, designers, engineers, uh, stakeholders. And so product managers are probably better equipped to deal with this type of creative conflict maybe than some other folks. It's, it's, I think it's one of the skills you have to either bring to the job or develop on the job. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing the behind the scenes documentary though, because it sounds like it could be a good one. <laughs> <laughs> I really, I think the, the instances of, of severe drama were probably <laughs> limited like to a handful or, or none. <laughs> <laughs> so the book focuses on just about everything that you need to know to be a product manager, right? So it touches on product principles. It touches on the fundamental job of a product manager, what they do, what they should be concentrating on, what product thinking means, all the way through to the nuts and bolts of answering interview questions, finding target companies, handling rejection. I mean, it's front to back, right? But there are a lot of books out there these days, and some of them are very specifically focusing on interview techniques and tactics. I could think of at least a couple off the top of my head. There was obviously Jackie's book, which you mentioned earlier on. Now, without slating anyone else's book, because this is a family podcast, why should someone buy your book and not one of those other ones if they had to make a choice? That's one of the things that we wanted to really focus on, right? Was how do we not replace necessarily existing resources, but augment them and provide something that's comprehensive and accessible for aspiring and more junior level PMs who are trying to get another job. And the approach that we took was that instead of focusing really on one of areas of this whole journey, right? Either learning a framework and applying it to interview questions, or here's how step-by-step to get a job. What we wanted to do was create a book experience that guides the reader through the whole process, both from level setting on what they actually need to know to be a BM, and then taking that fundamentals, which are true to all product managers, and then using that in a framework so that it builds on top of each other so that the reader becomes more confident as they read. So it's more of a comprehensive book written in such a way that it's accessible. So anything that's industry jargon will be explained and captured as a glossary at the back of the book. And then at the end of the book that they're basically on their way to getting the next job. So that it's a complete book something that I think that we tried to do is really go broad and only focus on what matters for this person in the goal of getting their next job. There is, I think, a lot to be said for helping people understand whether the job is right for them in advance before committing a lot of time to preparing for what in many cases is is an intensive interview process. And secondly, what type of product manager do they want to be? So I think we focus on that a lot more than some of the other resources out there, how product can differ from place to place. And you see that in some of the transcripts that we added to the back of the book, and also how we talk about certain subjects in in the various parts. A product manager at Microsoft or Amazon is going to be drastically, is going to have a drastically different experience and make drastically different contributions in many cases than the types of folks who are working on my team at a small B2B SaaS startup. Yeah. There's just so much variety out there. And I think opening candidates' eyes to that and helping them find the right PM role for them is something that we thought there might have been a little bit more of a gap in the marketplace. But Braxton, you talk in a book at one point around the importance of bringing your authentic self to the interview. And obviously, we don't want people lying to get jobs. But on the other hand, books like this, and I think I asked Jackie the same question when I interviewed her a few months back, 
they could be construed as ways of helping people fake it till they make it, right? Because you've basically laid out a strategy to succeed in a product management interview from front to back, like we said. Is it something that could be misused like that? And if so, is it okay? I mean, is faking it till you make it kind of okay as long as you eventually make it? Yeah, I wouldn't say I'm necessarily opposed to that concept in its entirety, right? But it's faking it till you make it, in my mind at least, is demonstrating some awareness and competency at a high level of what you need to know in order to get the job and and do the job. When I talked about authenticity, it's about identifying perhaps the unique experiences and skills that you can bring to the job. And during the interview process, selling to your interviewers why they should want those things that you can bring to their team and their product. And that's what I meant by authenticity and and how I try to emphasize that. Fair enough, and then fake the rest. (laughs) Now, up front in the book, you talk about product sense and how everyone has it. Now, before we worry about whether everyone has it, how in essence would you define product sense? This is an interesting question because everybody knows the term product sense, but they mostly know it in the context of like a Fang or Facebook or Google interview question that they're going to get in the interview process. Uh, A product sense question, which is usually related to designing or breaking down a product. This term, when we were researching, was first used in an essay by Ken Norton, who talks about product spidey sense, which I believe is how this term kind of like made its way into the zeitgeist of interview loops. And the way product thinking has kind of evolved was that it really started at a few small, not small companies, but a few set of companies. And that as those employees take those product interviewing practices into other companies, into other startups, it kind of just grew. And now every company, big or small, is going to have a product sense question. But no one really is clear on what that definition means outside of like the, the, like the small definition that was in this initial article. And what we define product sense as is the, in your innate ability to think about products in a conceptual sense and how to deliver that to market. So we, we're trying to place a definition on that as product sense being actually not just your designing of a product, but really how you're thinking about products, the problems that users solve, and how are you going to deliver that in a, an efficient way to that customer so that their problem is solved at the end. And Product Sense isn't a book just about designing, but it's the end and experience of being a PM and that everybody has this ability to be a product manager and to have Product Sense. They just need to strengthen it on every step of the way. And that's kind of how we were thinking about this and, and why we chose the title in the first place. But that very same essay that you just mentioned from Ken Norton, I think in it he says that it can't be learned and that it's something that you, you've either got it or you don't. And I know that you disagree with that. So as far as you're concerned, do you think that anyone can be a PM? And if they can, are there any prerequisites or can literally anyone be a PM with the right training? We disagree with that statement. And actually, we had, we had to specifically say that we want to say that everyone could be a PM. It's a you you already a product manager using product sense. It just depends if you want to amplify it. So the examples that we use are like Amazon reviews, right? So customers are coming in with an expectation about a product that they buy. And when they get it and then they use it, they're comparing their experience of using that product to what their expectations were and the problem that they actually had. And that review that they give is exercising their product sense. I completely agree with what you said, Pete. We We both disagree with that statement that 
it's something that you have to be born with. When we say that anyone can be a PM, though, it doesn't necessarily mean that you can take anyone off the street and they walk into the job today. It's that <laughs> right. anyone can learn to be a PM or develop the right skills to be a, a PM. But just like going to the gym in order to become more fit, you need to perhaps practice and research and learn new things in order to appropriately develop the muscles that you would need to be successful on the job. But one of the really inspiring things as we were interviewing many different folks who transitioned from other career paths into product is that the backgrounds were very rarely similar or the same. Right. And I think that's a testament to the, the concept that we all have an infinite capacity to learn and with an open-mindedness and good communication skills and finding the right type of PM role for you that you can be successful in it. Oh, you know, this reminds me of a story here too. So while we were writing this book, we enlisted the help of an editor. Her name is Sean and she's great. And she's helped us through the whole process. Now she's not a product manager. She, she had really no experience in the field before. And as she was going through and editing and reading our transcript, we could sense through the comments and suggestions that she was providing us, she was getting better and better at talking the language. And then towards the <laughs> end of the project together, like she, she was giving us feedback about like what we were saying as product management theory. She was disagreeing with us and adding value. And we ultimately were taking her suggestions. So it's just a case study in showing that practice is something that can really benefit your product sense. And I think that that's when we talk about different ways of even strengthening them in the book, which is just like looking at products and breaking them down, thinking about who might be using this product and what problems that they're, they're going to solve or that they need to be solved. And then like that alone is kind of just strengthening your innate product sense that is latent that when you do these exercises, it's going to bring out. I look forward to seeing her at Facebook sometime soon. <laughs> but another thing you talk about in the book I mean, alongside the idea of product sense being all about vision, North Stars, strategy, discovering value and executing, yeah, hitting, hitting all the greatest hits, right? But there's obviously a lot there, but you also bring up the concept of a PM superpower. So why is it important to identify your PM superpower? I mean, the cliche of a PM is we're all generalists, right? And we should all be good at all of those things. So why do you think it is important to discover that and work on it? I like the term PM superpower because it it kind of relates to what are you going to add uniquely to the organization that you're applying to. Now, one of the things that we do to help the reader identify their PM superpower is to take all the basic fundamentals that we kind of went through and that they are now are familiar with and rank them and give examples in their experiences of which ones that they apply that they feel most passionate about and also have the most experience in and those that combination is what creates this reader's superpower and that when they're in the interview process the thing that they want to demonstrate is that they are unique they're very clearly going to add value in this way and that the hiring manager is going to miss out on this opportunity for this person to become a part of their team. Because with PM interviews, and the thing that makes it really tough is that there's so many people that are trying to be that filling that role. And that 
you want to be unique. You want to show what your value is. And you want to be very clearly confident in what your elevator pitch is supposed to be. And that even though you have familiarity with all the concepts of product management, you're really, really great at these ones and you're passionate about it. And that's what's going to make you stand out in the interview process. But there's a danger there as well, right? Because we've all seen the unicorn job specs that come out there where basically someone expects you basically to have a superpower in absolutely all of the areas because that's how they write their job specs, I guess. So do you think that there's a danger that if you go in there trying to really focus on one area or amp up one area and show them what they're missing in that area, that you're not going to shine in the other ones? Or do you think actually that when you're interviewing for a company like that, if they put all those things on that advert, maybe you shouldn't even apply for that job in the first place? I think some of the table stakes of being a PM is enough well-roundedness to be able to competently handle all kinds of problems, right? You, you, like PMs are utility players in many ways, but the the idea of being of having a superpower of being of having like a T shape that you can call out as well may make you a better fit for some organizations or some products or maybe just some specific roles that a particular hiring manager or team is is trying to build. You know, an example. I don't have any PMs on my team right now who have development experience, but I'm thinking about bringing one on for a particular project where that would be extremely valuable. And I also like the idea of having that type of person in, generally speaking, our strategy meetings, our roadmap planning, et cetera, so that he can bring that real development work experience that he has, even though we have other people with technical backgrounds, to the table to deploy in whatever manner is kind of most appropriate as we move forward. Another example I'll give is we don't have a dedicated product marketer right now. So I hired someone who has more of that background. And although she's working as a PM, nominally, she's doing a lot of product marketing work. So in in this case, that's kind of her superpower. And you can be a a generalist and still have a superpower. Like that's the the benefit of like hiring generalist PMs. And those are the types of PMs that we're trying to basically promote in the book is that one, it, it allows for more lateral movement between teams. So People will eventually want to try something else. And if they're fully generalist, they can go jump onto another team and another product and, and operate effectively. And they can the other benefit being that like PMs can give feedback to each other and work a little bit more collaborative. Everybody has the same kind of like product thinking and theory background that is sort of beneficial. The superpower is to really show that you're passionate about a specific area, like, oh, I can do all this stuff, I can do that job, but like, I'm going to crush it in these areas because I'm really passionate about it. And passion is just a, such an important part of being a product manager. You're going to have to love the job and you're going to have to really work. You know, a lot of the times you might have to work hard, but if you're focusing on areas that you're passionate about, the hiring manager is going to be uh, pumped to put you on that project. Now, you also have a framework in the book to help answer some of the common types of questions you might get in interviews. It's called the Compass Framework. I think you mentioned it earlier. So without giving too much away, because we obviously want people to go and buy the book and keep you ahead of that Kindle book, how did you come up with the Compass Framework and how does it help you answer those interview questions? What we wanted to create was not just a mnemonic device that someone can bring to the interview and just fill out a whiteboard just and recite the answer to an interview question. What we wanted to demonstrate was that there is a way to approach these interview questions that demonstrates your applied concepts that you just learned in part one of the book, which is what should we build and why the number one question that PMs need to answer. Any question, any PM at any organization is really just answering that question. What should we build and why? And so a framework that incorporates that 
you're demonstrating that you know how to answer that question in a really structured way is, is where we wanted to start. The other thing that we were able to do was kind of a map these core concepts to essentially an aggregated, what we're calling an aggregated rubric that hiring managers in all organizations are looking for. So if you're demonstrating the applied concepts plus essentially what the hiring managers are looking for, that kind of that output was the start of the Compass framework. And that we had been piloting this with our coaches over you know the length of the time that we were being coaches for PMs and refined it. And the uh, we give a bunch of examples on how to do that in the book too. And it ultimately is is something that's supposed to just not necessarily be rigid. It's flexible. It's trying to be collaborative. We, we definitely talk about how this is when you're going into an interview with another PM who's going to be interviewing you, that it's a collaborative effort to solve this problem. And that using a structured device like the Compass Framework will help guide that discussion with that interviewer in, in, a, in a really like easy and good way. I think also just getting in our Instilling in our readers' minds the idea that having an approach or multiple approaches, perhaps, that they can deploy against case interview questions when they get them is something that we, we wanted to put our own stamp on and, and make sure that they took away from this. I would encourage anyone applying for a job in, or even thinking about a job in product management or career in product management, they go out and learn multiple ways of approaching case questions so that depending on the flavor of the question, they can pick what works best for the circumstances, their own personal style, and maybe what the interview requires over the course of that conversation too, since those can sometimes be unpredictable. Now, Braxton, you've got an MBA mm-hmm. and you think it could be helpful. I think you said so in the book. And Peter, you don't have an MBA and you don't necessarily think it's helpful. And we kind of touched that a little bit earlier. And Marty Kagan obviously recently wrote about this, but blog post that went around the internet, stirred up a lot of controversy, had a couple of people on the podcast that have been defending MBAs. No one's really joined in to dig at them yet. But just for the record, and you know, to try and give a better balance, because we've got the two of you here, let's settle the debate. Do we really need an MBA to be a good product manager? I'll start as the person who has an MBA. I don't believe that it is by any means necessary to have an MBA to work in product management. I've seen many good product managers who are MBAs and many who don't have MBAs. So it's it's more a question of what's right for the individual as they're crafting their career and, and maybe even considering a change in circumstances. So in my case, I had majored in accounting and leadership studies in undergrad, worked as a public accountant, and then in, in accounting and finance at a nonprofit. I went to get my MBA, not necessarily thinking I want to break into product management, but wanting to explore many different career paths. And this is one that I found that I ended up loving and thinking was right for me. I certainly think that there are things that I learned during that time, not only from my classes, but also from my classmates and the experiences that they had and the knowledge that they had that have been valuable to me. But that said, um, I think it's perfectly acceptable for someone to take a, a different path into product management and be outstanding at it. My take is from the non-MBA path. I also... I clearly think that you don't need an MBA to be a good product manager. The fundamentals that like a PM needs to do, especially on the earlier side of a PM career, is is not something you're going to learn in business school. You know, think like data analysis, you know, writing specs, thinking about users and stuff like that. That this is all things that you can learn on the job, especially in those roles. What 
you want to look for in this, you know, kind of like junior level PM is somebody who's really passionate, who is collaborative, who can, who knows the concepts that you're supposed to know so that they can come in and get refined through practice. And from my personal experience, like as I got uh, more, more and more senior in the product field, and I've never done anything but be a product manager. So my role uh, over time has shifted like all other PMs who kind of climb the career ladder is that it becomes more strategic and more businessy focused where you're running, you're becoming running, you're actually running businesses as opposed to thinking about product. Now, I think that that experience in business school, the education I would have received probably would have helped for me prepare a little bit more for, for, for thinking at the higher level strategy. And when you're thinking strategic, you don't necessarily care about what the thing is that you're actually building. You're trying to think broader and how we're going to compete in the market and who's doing well. And then you start thinking, you know, those are the types of things that business school case, you know, case studies that you do in business school will help prepare for. But it wasn't something that I wasn't able to kind of learn from my mentors, from the managers making mistakes and things like that. Like the MBA would have maybe given me a little bit of a head start on that one. But is it worth the whatever 200 grand that you pay? (laughs) Maybe not. I think the network that you get from business schools also invaluable. That would be something that would maybe it helps you get a job because you probably already know PMs that can help you get connected there. There's another chance of getting an internship at that point because I had an internship when I was in undergrad. I know that there's plenty of people who are MBA candidates that are getting internships, you know, later on in their career. And so that is just another chance at that. But I think that once you become a PM and you can become a PM in other ways than getting an MBA, then there's no point in going back and getting the MBA and then continuing to be a product manager. I don't think that that's going to help you that much. We shouldn't mince words, though. It it can be really difficult to break into product management. And I think the stamp of approval that an MBA program, especially like a top-tier MBA program, can offer will make it much easier for some people. And one of the phenomena, I think, that has made this debate even relevant at all is that Amazon especially is hiring dozens of MBAs from many MBA programs in the United States, certainly, but around the world. And then all those people churn out of Amazon within two years or something, they go elsewhere. So there are a lot of MBAs in product for that reason. And to your point, certainly some of the other things we studied and talked about and learned are relevant to other aspects of being a PM, especially as you move up the ladder. And there are a lot of courses increasingly that are relevant to product manager careers in MBA programs. Data analysis was probably always a thing, but is even more so. I have people I'm coaching now who are taking Python for managers or principles of product management. And then there's kind of a tier two or tier three of that course. So as MBAs have adjusted to the demand from their students to go into tech and to go into product management, in many cases, I think it has probably become increasingly relevant. Yeah, and this is this you can definitely tell that this is maybe the point of contention that Brexton and I have gone back and forth <laughs> the most on during the writing process of this. And one thing that we did do was that we outlined in part three of the book, five strategies of breaking into product management. Because whether you know you think it's valuable or not, not everybody is privileged enough to be able to one, get into a top 10 business school or can afford it, right? And so that by saying that you must get this to be like the best position to get a product management position is not necessarily something that we really wanted to make sure that is being told. The like we did a we had a story that we talked about, I think her name was Janet in the book, who transitioned into product management from customer support. And that was one of the things that, you know, I see and probably Braxton sees and a lot of people in 
the industry will kind of highlight is that if you're in a role that's tangential to product where you actually are talking to customers on a day-to-day basis, that makes you a really good candidate for shifting into product management within the same organization. So for customer support, for example, you're frontline for what the problems the customers are having. You can see them, they're talking to you first before anybody else, and that you can use that knowledge and leverage to transition within your organization to say, hey, I, can he- I see these problems. Here's how I might fix it. And using that kind of extracurricular activity will be seen by leadership if you're doing it in a visible way and in a strong way, and that it's a clear pathway to do that. I've seen people transition from sales, engineering, all sorts of different positions. And design, certainly. Product marketing, certainly. Yeah. QA. I've seen people change into design or product as well. Mm-hmm. And since in the book you talk a bit about the fan companies and obviously a lot around what some of the fundamentals are of product management and what product managers should be doing and, and how they should be spending their time, there was a guy who posted on Twitter recently, works for Facebook, product manager, apparently been there for greater than a year. I don't know how much longer than a year, but he's been there for longer than a year. And he proudly boasts that he's, quote, created zero tickets and tasks. PMs here focus on vision, strategy, and partnerships, less on project management and tasks. Now, you talk about the importance in the book of execution. So do you think it's fair enough that this Facebook product manager is washing his hands to some extent of some of those parts of his job? Or is he just offloading stuff unfairly onto his team? Uh, it's hard to comment from the outside. I, I would say but that let's do this it anyway. circumstance... <laughs> <laughs> I think this circumstance to me sounds pretty unusual for someone, especially earlier in their career in product, but maybe something that is more possible at a large tech firm with lots of different types of teams and types of roles and, and maybe on some of those teams, different ways of doing things. My expectation for, for any PM on any of the teams that I've ever worked on would be that you know, even, the, even the leadership, the sort of director plus roles are still creating Jira tickets from time to time are getting their hands dirty. I think I think a PM should at any level should approach the role with a willingness to get their hands dirty and do what needs to be done in order for the product to be successful. Yeah. And it would be rare for that not sometimes to entail some kind of more what might otherwise be considered grunt work like <laughs> in Jira or spec writing or or testing, right? right? Like I think all of us on a development team, product development team are responsible for the quality of the product and to say you're only focusing on vision and strategy and, and not doing some of the, the more hands-on stuff, I, would, I find unusual. This hot take is very interesting, and I, and I like this discussion that comes out of it. I think that, well, first, as a product manager, the, the buck stops with you, really. Now, the engineering yeah. team is, is there to deliver something. Now, if the feature comes out and it doesn't hit the mark, if there's bugs in the code or if it increases in scope and things like that, that's the PM's problem and that they have to fix it. And if they're not paying attention to what's being built on even the most micro level or getting in the trenches and building the feature, like co-developing it with the development team, then they're doing something wrong. Now, that being said... There is a, an important bit about like, you know, in a high functioning team, like the, the specialization is, is also kind of an important bit. And, you know, you have a back end engineer because, you know, maybe you want to have a front end and a back end engineer focusing on their base, or maybe you want to have a full stack kind of engineer delivering a feature end to end. 
there's different strategies here. And one of the strategies here uh, uh, that could be the case in, the, in Facebook, which I think is based on the other colleagues that I have that now currently work there, is that it's better time spent for them if they can put that little extra energy and making sure that problem is validated. If that problem, if they build something that doesn't get like doesn't actually move any KPIs, it's the product manager's fault. And if they need to spend most of their time doing that, that's great. In my experience too, like when when I'm working at a previous company, co-developing a feature with a really strong engineering team, I'm still making tickets, but they're like story tickets. They're epic tickets. They're yeah. this is what the priority is. And that if I'm making individual development team tasks, I'm not capable of writing that down. Like an engineer needs to spell out exactly what it is that needs to be fixed. I can only say that like the user story level. I mean, I could do it at this micro level, but maybe I'm just saying something that is just not technically sound enough for it to be built. So I think like I see his point. I understand that the the take is there to cause controversy. I think a good PM, (laughs) I think a good PM should be able to do everything, but that at a certain organization with enough people and the like, big enough for people to specialize, I can see why that might be the case. Yeah, I think for me, there's this concept, and it's not just my concept, but the concept I've seen of like having a zoom level or a, you know, the hover level of your helicopter or whatever else, right? It's like even VPs of product, as you said, like they're, they're going to have to get in, they're gonna have to get down into the mud from time to time, right? Because sometimes you just need to do what needs to be done. That's not to say that it's the best place for a product manager to be sitting there spending all of their time working on tickets, absolutely not. But to spend none of their time writing tickets, someone else has to write those tickets, right? And there's a certain, I guess, information loss as well when you're going from person to person to get that ticket written, right? And to flip that around, I guess, there's the other argument that, of course, if everyone's collaborating properly and communicating properly and they're all on the same page, then a lot of that shared understanding is there anyway. But washing your hands of it entirely does seem to be slightly off of the... I guess, cliche of a product manager being the person that's there to make sure that whatever needs to get done is getting done, right? Right, right. So but who knows? Maybe I'll get that guy on one day and we can challenge him face to face. I suspect I suspect he will change roles at some point, either within Facebook <laughs> or outside of Facebook, and we, he will have to be writing some Jira tickets, but yeah, we'll see. Up for a rude awakening at some point. <laughs> and where can people find you guys after this if they want to reach out, obviously, either to talk about the book or to just chat about anything that they've heard or any or any product stuff in general? We can be like our website is called productsensebook.com. It's easy. There's a contact list there, which, and you can, you can reach us, us directly if there's any questions about the book. Yeah, honestly, I'm, I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. So that's probably the best place to reach me. It's just Braxton Bragg. And um, there aren't too many of too many people out there with my <laughs> name and uh, none of them work at Leica. <laughs> <laughs> Cool. I'll make sure those are all linked in and hopefully you'll get a few people coming over and checking you out and maybe even buying a copy of your book. Awesome. Again, to try and keep it ahead of that, deleting the book from Kindle book for as long as possible. <laughs> well, it's been fantastic to chat to both of you. It's been a learning journey for me as well. My first ever two-on-one interview. So hopefully it was uh, painless for you. Hopefully we can stay in touch. But yeah, as for now, thanks for taking the time. Jason, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, this has been great. As ever, thanks for listening. I hope you found the episode inspiring and insightful. If you did, I can only encourage you to go over to the website, onenightinproduct.com, check out some of my other fantastic episodes, sign up to the mailing list or subscribe on your favorite podcast app, and make sure you share with your friends so you and they can never miss another episode again. 
I'll be back soon with another inspiring guest, but as for now, thanks and good night. <laughs> <laughs>